Hey guys, and welcome to the very first episode of Daily Kaylee. Daily Kaylee is a podcast where we can literally talk about anything. Today's episode, however, is about the murders of Cabin 28. Cabin 28 was located on Spanish Oaks Lane in Keddie, California. For a little background on Keddie, Keddie was basically a resort town, very family-friendly, kid-friendly, everyone knew each other. Nothing out of the ordinary would happen unless everyone knew about it. Until the Sharp family moved there in 1980. Sue Sharp left her husband in Connecticut and moved all the way to Keddie, California to be closer to her brother Don. She took her five children with her. John was the oldest. He was 15. Then she had a daughter named Sheila, who was 14, and a daughter Tina, who was 12, along with two other sons, Rick and Greg, who were 5 and 10. The Sharp family had not even lived in Keddie for a whole year before half of them were brutally murdered in their own home. On April 11, 1981, just hours before the murder, at around 1.30 p.m., Sue and her daughter Sheila drive all the way to Gansner Park, which is in Quincy, California, about a five-mile drive away from Keddie, to pick up her son John and his friend Dana Wingate. This was pretty normal for the Sharps. Dana actually lived in Gansner Park, so it wasn't anything out of the ordinary for them to be doing this this afternoon. And then about two hours later, around 3.30 p.m., John and Dana actually hitchhiked back to Quincy. There are countless eyewitness accounts of them in the downtown area at this time. One woman actually claimed to have picked them up outside of a tire store and drove them about two miles down the road to meet their friends. Later that evening, they were seen at a party in Oakland Camp, which is also in Quincy, so still only five miles from home. But this was the last time that they were ever seen alive. On that same evening of April 11th, Sue's oldest daughter, Sheila, on that same evening of April 11th, Sue's oldest daughter, Sheila, was supposed to spend the night with the Seabolt family who lived adjacent to the Sharps. Their cabins were so close that they could probably see each other just by looking out the window. She left home at around 7 p.m., which left Sue home alone with her two younger sons, Rick and Greg, and their neighborhood friend, Justin Smart. Sue's youngest daughter, Tina, arrived back home around 9.30 p.m. She had also been at the Seabolt families pretty much all day watching TV, She met her sister there when she arrived, hung out for a little bit, and then decided to walk back home. After this, there was only speculation on what happened to the Sharp family between 9.30 p.m. and 7 a.m. the next morning. Sheila arrived home around 7 a.m. the next morning after her sleepover to find not only her mother, Sue, but her brother, John, and his friend, Dana, all dead in the living room floor. John is closest to the door, and he is lying on his back, face up. His hands are completely bloody, and they are bound together with medical tape. His friend Dana is laying right next to him, face down on his stomach. Half of his head looked like it was almost completely bashed in by some heavy object. Someone had laid his head somewhat on a pillow, as if they were in a hurry. His ankles were bound together with electrical wire, and then they were bound to John's legs. Sue was lying on her side behind the sofa, naked from the waist down. She was gagged with a blue bandana that didn't belong in the cabin and her own underwear, and both of these were taped down to her face with medical tape to make sure they didn't fall out. 
Her throat was slashed along with her son's. And she also had the imprint of a Daisy 880 BB gun on the side of her head as if she had just been hit with it extremely hard. Someone had also covered her up with a blanket as if this covered up any of her wounds, which makes no sense. Maybe they felt bad. I don't know. Just seems really strange to me that they would do that when it doesn't cover up anything. All of their autopsies showed they had died of the exact same cause, which was blunt force trauma. The entire house, apart from the boys' bedroom, was covered in blood. It was all over the walls, the bottoms of their feet. It was all over the floor leading to the kitchen. And it was on Tina's bedding in her back bedroom. This led investigators to believe that they had been moved and placed in their positions after death. Which I think is even creepier, honestly, than just leaving them there. But let's continue. All three of the younger boys were safe in their bedrooms, completely untouched. Which is also very strange that they weren't even like confronted by anyone that came in the house. They were just completely unharmed and just left alone the entire time. But Tina was missing along with her jacket, her shoes, and a toolbox from the house. When Sheila saw this, she pretty much immediately ran back to the Seabolt's house, where James Seabolt, the father of the Seabolt family, followed her back to the cabin and pulled the younger boys out of their bedroom window so that he wouldn't contaminate the evidence in the house. However, he later admitted to police that he did enter the cabin through the back door, just to make sure no one was still alive, which completely contaminated the evidence and probably is what ruined part of this case. Throughout the entire night, Sheila and the Seabolts heard absolutely nothing, even though they were pretty much right next door. There was a nearby couple that thought that they may have heard screaming, but they weren't exactly sure where it was coming from, so they kind of just ignored it until they were questioned by police. When investigators arrived, all of the curtains in the cabin were closed, all the lights were off, and the phone was left off the hook. Some of the neighbors noticed a green van parked outside of the cabin at around 9.30 p.m., which would be after Tina arrived home. And then others saw a brown Nissan that kind of looked like it might have a flat tire parked outside earlier that day. Which, again, like, no one thought nothing of this until they were questioned by police. That is what I don't understand. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, especially back in the day, people had some nosy ass neighbors. Like, I don't understand how someone could be like peeking through the curtains because a car pulled up and they see this strange car outside of their neighbor's house. They don't call, or if they do call, the phone's off the hook and they still just ignore it. They're like, oh, it's cool. They'll be fine. Whatever. No strange person. Maybe they know them. No big deal. And then even when they find out that these people were murdered, they still don't even think about this until the police come directly to them. I I do not understand. None of the boys were questioned at first. Police just kind of assumed since they were younger, they either slept through the whole thing and didn't notice anything. Or that if they did, they would come forward. And since they didn't come forward, they didn't need to question them because it could upset them. But 
Eventually, they did decide to question the boys. And Justin Smart told police that at first he had dreamt of the details of the murder, which makes no fucking sense whatsoever. And police knew this. So he finally admitted that he did witness the murders take place. Justin said that he was watching TV with the other boys when he heard strange noises coming from the living room. So he decided to peek out the door and he apparently saw two strange men come into the house and begin talking to Sue. Not too long after that, Dana and John arrived, and apparently they immediately began arguing with these men. Justin was either too young to know what they were arguing about or he didn't hear, but it was apparently a very heated argument. And then, not too long after that started, Tina arrives home, and immediately, one of the men take her out back. Like, no questions asked, no second glances, like, just grab her and go. After taking Justin's statement, they have sketches drawn up of these men. One of them was described as having short, dark blonde hair and a mustache. And the other one had long black hair and was perfectly clean shaven. These men were identified as being between 5'6 and 6'2, and they both wore gold-framed glasses. Out of all of the suspects that they interviewed, The most interesting to me were Justin Smart's parents. They honestly put themselves on the police's radar, which, in my opinion, kind of makes them seem more guilty. But Marilyn Smart found Tina's jacket in her basement covered in blood and turned it into police. I have no idea how she knew this was Tina's jacket. Honestly, there's no clue how it got into her basement, obviously, unless someone put it there, which could have been them. Then Martin Smart, her husband, claimed to have a hammer missing from his home. He tried to pass it off as maybe he just misplaced it, but police kind of thought this was suspicious to even bring up unless he thought someone had taken it. The county sheriff at the time actually released a statement after interviewing the suspects. And part of his statement said that he believed the evidence given to him by the smarts was specifically drawn up just to throw suspicion away from them. But Martin Smart did pass a polygraph, so he was no longer considered a suspect for this case. Because Tina was abducted from the crime scene, She was considered a missing person instead of deceased. So the Keddy Police Department called in the FBI to look for her. However, not even three weeks later, the FBI called off their search and left, claiming that the police department was already doing enough to help the case. Which again, makes no fucking sense. Like, I know this is the 80s, but I mean, you're the FBI. Why are you just leaving it to the police? This probably is what hindered the case for so long, in my opinion. After the FBI left, the police department set up a five-mile radius around the cabin and brought in canines to search for Tina. Nothing came of this until April 22, 1984, which was three years and 11 days after Tina's disappearance and the murder of her family. On April 22, 1984, a bottle collector discovered the cranium part of a human skull and part of a mandible at Camp 18, which is near Feather Falls, California. 
which is also 100 miles from Katy. Shortly after the police released this information to the public, they received an anonymous call that identified the remains as Tina Sharp. This was not documented in the case whatsoever until 2013. In 2013, a deputy was going over the evidence and found a recording of that call in the bottom of a box. They received this call and just thought nothing of it. Which, I understand they could get a prank call or someone just assuming that it's Tina. But right after this, they were confirmed to be Tina's by a forensic pathologist. And they still never look into this person that called. It's ridiculous. Nearby the remains, detectives also found a blue nylon jacket, a blanket, a pair of Levi jeans that had one of the back pockets missing, and an empty dispenser of surgical tape. Nothing other than rumors came from this case until after Martin Smart's death in 2000. In 2008, Marilyn Smart was being interviewed for a documentary, and she released mind-blowing new information that she had never shared before. I don't know if she was scared of her husband or if she was just being loyal and trying to protect him and her family, but this is what she told the interviewer. She told them that she had always suspected her husband Martin and his friend John of committing these murders. Marilyn said that on the evening of the crimes on April 11th, she left Martin and John at a local bar at 11 p.m. and returned home for bed. This isn't really strange to me. I mean, her son was at the neighbor's spending the night. Her husband was out with a friend. She probably just needed some me time and just wanted to rest. But around 2 a.m., she was woken up by her husband Martin and his friend John burning something in the wood stove. She had no clue what this was. She didn't see it, but she just thought it was extremely suspicious that they were doing this in the middle of the night, and I totally agree with Marilyn. She also claimed that Martin hated John Sharp with a passion, which is also something that I think is a huge red flag, seeing as how John was a 15-year-old boy and Martin was a grown man with a family. She gives no backstory there, but she's very concerned about that fact. On March 24th, 2016, a hammer that matched the murder weapon and the description of the one Martin claimed to have lost was found in a local pond. The new county sheriff stated that in the location the hammer was found, there was absolutely no way that it was misplaced. It had to have been intentionally put there. Also in 2016, a new article was released that gave information on Martin Smart. Shortly after the murders, Martin left his family in Keddy and moved to Reno, Nevada. He wrote a letter to Marilyn, and in the letter he stated, I've paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. They interviewed the sheriff at the time, and he says, They had this letter all along, and in the initial investigation, it was not considered evidence. It was completely overlooked. No one thought twice about it, and he thought this is just 
more proof that that investigation was terrible. After this letter was made public, Martin's counselor came forward with evidence from their sessions and stated that Martin had admitted to the murders of Sue and Tina, but he also said he did not touch the boys. John and Dana, he had absolutely nothing to do with their murders. He also allegedly told the counselor that he killed Tina to prevent her from identifying him because she walked in and witnessed the entire thing. After this, they still never declared Martin as the official murderer of the Sharp family. Instead, they kept looking for new evidence. In April of 2018, the Ketty Police Department stated that DNA evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene matched the DNA of a living known suspect. And this is the last thing they have released on this case to this day. They never gave out a list of suspects in the beginning. They still haven't. We still have no idea who this living suspect was, but they have not been arrested or charged with these crimes. This case has gone unsolved for 39 years. And honestly, I think a lot of it actually has to do with the initial investigators. They had absolutely no idea what the hell they were doing. They contaminated so much evidence. They overlooked so many key pieces in this case. I'm not surprised that it's on the song because of them. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, Please tell me what you think. You can message me on Facebook. You can comment on my page. Tell me what you think of this case, of my first episode. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I love you so much for supporting me. I'll see you next time.